0: even over two key institutions, fasting and Sabbath. If you remember, Jesus' recasting of these central institutions of Israel has led to some run-ins with the religious elites who are not comfortable with a rabbi from Nazareth, one with no name and zero pedigree operating outside the lines of their long-standing traditions. They ask Jesus why his disciples do not fast. Jesus responds, and this is my paraphrase, there is no reason to seek God's presence through fasting when God is at the table with you. They are angered when Jesus does work, healing someone, on the Sabbath. Jesus reminds them that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And he says this, so the son of man, speaking of himself, that's a deity claim, Daniel 7, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And finally, in the verses directly before ours today, in his healing of the man with the withered hand, Jesus provokes the religious leaders by asking them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Pastor Jason preached this text before Easter, and this, this stood out to me, this statement he asked us, or he told us. A God-centered faith produces a human-directed mercy every time. You remember that? I thought that was a good line. A God-centered faith produces a human-directed mercy every single time. He asks us to evaluate if our faith was separating us from people or bringing us near people. Do we care more about certain issues than about individuals? Do we care more about institutions than we do about people? It is into this context that we're dropping in today. So Mark chapter 3, 7 through 35. Like I said, if you have a Bible, whoop, open that thing. Um, This is a lot of verses. I'm not going to dive deep on every one. There's probably four sermons in this. Um, So we're going to read. I'm going to read it through and then kind of hit a little bit and then read some more and then hit a little bit. And then finally, we're going to end on the big chunk on a moment between Jesus and his earthly family. We're going to spend most of the time there. We're going to draw out the implications of, of that. And then I'm actually going to kind of work in reverse back through it really fast at the end. So hopefully that will all, all make sense. So here we go. Jesus has just healed a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And two rival groups with power in the religious and political landscape are now joining forces. The text tells us they are figuring out a way to destroy him. Here we go. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. So, what we have here, we have a very large crowd. It's a crowd made up from Jewish and Gentile communities. So the word is spreading fast. In Mark's gospel, he's sort of building the growing crowd that's around Jesus. People are traveling on foot from over 100 miles away. That would be like if we walked to Daytona Beach together. So they're coming from a long way. Great sacrifice to get to see Jesus. When the great crowd heard all he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So the the size of the crowd is getting to be dangerously large. You can imagine the desperation of those who believe, if I can just touch Jesus, my life can be changed. right? And in the process of liberating people... Unclean spirits, the text tells us unclean spirits are literally coming out of people's bodies. And so the text goes on. We're in verse 11 now. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So the demonic spirits recognize Jesus. They know him, but they surrender to him. It's a reminder of the power of God over evil, as well as the unseen spiritual war that's at play even now. Jesus orders the unclean spirits not to make his identity known, because he has much work to do. And he knows that his identity as the Messiah will lead to increasing adversity, especially among the religious elites. All right, back in verse 13. Here we go. And he, he went up on the mountain... And he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. This is a good picture of gospel order. God is always the initiator in our lives. His calling, his word, it has authority. Whoever Jesus calls will come to him. Keep praying for those people in your life who don't know Jesus, that Jesus would call them. Be persistent in prayer for your family and friends. Verse 13 again, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve. So stop and think about this. I believe Mark is trying to show us something through this. Who else in scripture goes up on a mountain and appoints twelve? Moses, if you remember, goes up Mount Sinai. He appoints, he orders, he delegates responsibility to the 12 tribes of Israel. Moses mediates a covenant between God and Israel. And now we have Jesus going up a mountain, the mediator of the new covenant, and he names, appoints, delegates responsibility to the 12 disciples. Mark is showing us that Jesus is forming something new. And this has been a recurring theme, actually, in Mark's Gospel. Think back in our sermon series. In one of his responses, one of Jesus' responses to the religious leaders, he says, you can't put old wine in new wineskins. If you do, uh, the new wine, it will expand. The old wineskins have already been expanded. The new expansion will actually burst the skins. He also says, um, you can't sew an old patch on new clothes. That's because the gospel of Jesus, the good news of salvation through grace, is not a patch to the old covenant. It's a new covenant that Jesus is establishing. A new community and a new covenant with new central institutions. And hold on to that thought of a new community. We're coming back to that. All right, we're going to go back and start again at verse 13. I know the slides guy, I'm keeping you you on your toes. All right, verse 13. And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Jesus is calling this new community to abide with him in a unique way. I was struck this week that the first purpose of the disciples is to abide with him. I see a lot more gospel order right here. For the Christian, for us, abiding must always come before action. He calls them, the disciples, so that uh, he might be with them. He wants to be with us. This is central to God's desire for who we are. He wants to be with us. And from this life-giving relationship, we then have the spiritual energy to go and live on mission. Verse 16. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This ragtag team of fishermen, tax collectors, and religious extremists is the group of people God chose to establish his new community on earth. So my takeaway from that is you don't have to be special to get in on Jesus, right? But you do have to be obedient to the call. Verse 20. Then he went home. That's Jesus. He went home and the crowd gathered again. He can't get away from the crowd. So they could not even eat. At first I thought oh man, like you're tight and so packed that you can't get your hands up to eat. I think this has more to do with they're so busy healing and doing the things that they don't have time to eat. And when his family heard it they went out to seize him. And th- this, is, this word has in mind a forceful arrest. So they, they are coming, um, a forceful intervention of sorts. For they were saying, this is his family. Imagine this about your family. They were saying, he is out of his mind. So at the end of the previous sermon text, we have the two rival groups um, forming an unlikely alliance in order to oppose Jesus. They're figuring out a way to destroy him, Right? Now Jesus is being opposed by his biological family. So the religious leaders miss Jesus. His own family misses Jesus. Yet the crowds, the sinners, the needy, the diseased, they love Jesus. They're so drawn to Jesus. It reminds us that you can be close in proximity to Jesus, but if you don't believe you have need of him, you might miss him entirely. Mark two. Uh, Seventeen. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. All right, let's go. Verse 22. A little bit of a break, kind of a different thing here going. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem... So the scribes are on an appointed mission to discredit Jesus. They're not coming with an open mind. They're coming down to discredit him. And the scribes were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. So his family says he's getting carried away with himself. He thinks he's somebody better than he is. The scribes say he's possessed by Satan. The reflex of both groups is to explain away Jesus. He doesn't fit their expectations, right? Modern day equivalents for explaining away Jesus uh, can, can be these. He was a really good moral teacher, but he wasn't God. I really like what Jesus has to say about love and forgiveness, but I can't believe in someone who teaches about a literal hell. We don't get to explain away Jesus. We don't get to explain away the parts we don't like, that don't fit for us. We need to take Jesus, the whole package, all of who he is, on his own terms. Okay, 23, we're flying through this, right? And he, Jesus, called to them. This is interesting. He called the apostles, right, up the mountain. Now he's calling the scribes or the, yeah, scribes to him. Both are called. Very different outcome. And he, Jesus, called to them and he said to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against Satan and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his goods. So first, Jesus explains the stupidity of their argument. What good would a civil war do for Satan? If Satan is fighting against Satan, then he's defeating himself. Instead, Jesus says, Satan is being defeated, but not through civil war. I am the mighty one who has come to bind up the strong man. Satan came to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come to give life, to forgive sins, to heal disease, to liberate people from evil. Jesus continues in the text, now in verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. That's good news. That's really good news. Yeah. All sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they, speaking of the scribes, were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So, two instances of blasphemy in the text, and Jesus differentiates them for us. His own family is guilty of blasphemy. They say he's out of his mind. This is different than the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit... ...which is what we see in the scribes. His family doesn't get what's going on. That is one thing. The scribes attribute what's going on to the work of Satan. They attribute the work of God to, that, to the work of Satan. And Jesus says this particular form of blasphemy is an eternal sin. He seems to say this is an unforgivable sin... ...but I think there's a nuance here worth noting... It's not as though God's power is limited from forgiving this type of particular sin. As though this sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, is too far beyond the reach of God. No. Pastor and and theologian Tim Keller, who we go to for the, the hard stuff, says it like this. God can forgive sin, any sin. God can forgive any sin, but he can't forgive any sin if you don't see your need for forgiveness. God can forgive any sin. There's no limit. But he can't forgive any single sin if you don't think you need to be forgiven. Seeing your need for forgiveness is essential. God's mercy is great enough for all my sin, but it can't cleanse any of my sin. If I refuse him, resist him, and consider the finished work of Jesus as no consequence to my life. All right, pressing on to the text. Now we've arrived at the final chunk. Good job, guys. Keep it up, I hope. Uh, final chunk of verses. A moment between Jesus and his earthly family, which we're kind of going to get um, some big implications from. So verse 31. Lean in with me. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. As you know, one of the Ten Commandments is honor your father and mother. So we can imagine that the crowd is expecting Jesus to drop everything uh, and go to them. Verse 33, And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. In previous texts, we've seen Jesus overturn the tables on the traditions of fasting and Sabbath. And now Jesus puts his hands underneath a third central institution of the Jewish community. And the entire ancient Near East, for that matter. The institution of family. And there's two dynamics at play uh, when we talk about ancient Near East conception of family. I want to get into both of those. There's the immediate family and the extended family. So, in the ancient Near East, as well as many places around the world today, the nuclear family had an extremely strong claim on who you are. Your dad, uh, Who your dad was told you what your career would be. Uh, There's implications of your socioeconomic status tied directly to your family and who they are and who they've been. Inheritance is tied to family. Almost certainly where you will live your entire life is tied to where your family has lived. Uh, You can almost see your future in your immediate family. And zooming out from there, for the Jewish people, the bloodline connection that tied them together as descendants of Abraham was core to how they saw themselves and their unique place in the world. Their sense of pride, purpose, and future hope are carried along by this belief about their ethnicity. Nothing is more binding than bloodlines. It's a central institution for them. Yet Jesus says there is something that connects people on a deeper level than family, a deeper level than genetics, tribe, or ethnicity. It's faith and obedience to God. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Through this series of stories, ordered in this strategic way, I believe Mark is revealing to us that Jesus is forming a new covenant community. And the bond is more binding than blood. The new community isn't bound by blood. It's bound by faith and obedience to God. Consider these parallels. Moses goes up on a mountain and calls 12 tribes and forms the community of Israel. Jesus goes up on a mountain and calls 12 apostles and begins the formation of the church. Israel is connected by blood. Blood lines back to Abraham. The church is also connected by blood, but it's the blood of Jesus. Israel received forgiveness of sins through the sacrificial system, the systematic offering of bulls and goats and lambs. The church receives forgiveness through the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, his once and for all sacrifice. Israel had been given a covenant with God. Do these things and I will bless you. Do these things and you'll be cursed. The entire Old Testament describes how Israel couldn't live up to their end of the covenant. The covenant between God and man had been broken by man. And because of the broken covenant, the strong man, sin, evil, Satan himself had a claim on us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We were all at one point slaves to sin. We needed a stronger man to save us. And the gospel of Jesus is that his finished work, his perfect sinless life, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection is such a cosmically powerful work that it establishes a new, con- a new covenant between God and man. A covenant not of works, but of grace through faith. A work that overcomes the strong man and restores us into the family of God. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. I love Galatians 4 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you, Trinity Wellsprings Church, are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. It's how we cry, Abba, Father. It's how we know him personally. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So as we conclude, I want to gaze at the beauty of what it means to be in the family of God. And I want to flush out some implications of this truth, running back over three themes from the text. So here's the themes we're going to cover. Worth, purpose, and identity. Pretty basic. Worth, purpose, and identity. Trying to be really fundamental. How might your everyday life be different if you were functionally confident and secure in your worth, your purpose, and your identity? I believe if we can functionally believe all that Jesus is teaching us through this text, we can experience rest from the continual striving in these fundamental longings of our hearts. So lean in with me as we finish. Look at the implications of how your being in the family of God impacts your worth, your purpose, and your identity. Not just on Sundays, not just here in this room, it's easy to believe in here, but on every moment of our lives. First, look to the family of God for your worth. In the family of God, He calls you. In particular, and He has called you to Himself. Think about what Ephesians 1, 3-6 actually is saying. We've, We've read this a lot. Think about what this is actually saying. He has blessed us in the Beloved. Here is what is true for you if you're a Christian. God knew you before the foundation of the world. He saw you. He chose you. Your life has eternal significance because God has put his stamp on you. No accomplishment, career, possession on this earth could make you more valuable than the Creator saying mine over your entire life. This week, when career family, friends, tests, or trials make you feel like a failure, and that's probably going to happen, right? Feel like a failure is pretty, co- pretty common for us. Remind yourself that God has already said you're worthy. So worthy that he sent his son so that you could be welcomed back into the family. Value is always established by how, so- how much someone is willing to pay for it, right? So see your value in the eyes of God. See yourself as he sees you through Jesus. All right, so second, look to the family of God for your purpose. So we look to, to God's to being in the family for our worth. Now we're looking for our purpose. In the text, Jesus names the disciples and delegates responsibilities for his heaven-on-earth mission to them. And he has done the same for us. Are you struggling to find a sense of uh, purpose in your career or a cause or a current circumstance? God gives each of us a greater, all satisfying purpose to abide with Him and live out His mission in your life. Bring this profound purpose into your everyday life, and your career, your family, and every single element will take on a durable purpose that won't be shattered by your circumstances. It's really not about the job, it's really not about the situation that you're in, it's really not about the sickness. It's about what God wants to do in you and through you, through whatever circumstance he's placed you in. Begin to see your life with a gospel purpose, no matter where he has you. Ephesians 2.10, you're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that you should walk in them. Bring his purpose into your present, and it will fill, you, it will fill whatever circumstance you're facing with gospel purpose. I believe that. Uh, no, none of you are out operating outside of the will of God. He has you right where he wants you. So see your true purpose through the lens of being in the family of God. So in his family, we find our worth, we find our purpose, and lastly, in the family, we find our identity. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. In the family of God, you are a brother and sister of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's crazy. That's crazy. God is your father. Heaven is your inheritance. You are part of a new community God has established on earth. Think about the functional, life-giving peace you could experience if you actually believed in every moment of every day that the almighty creator of the universe is your father in heaven who knows you completely and loves you perfectly. If this is true... What do we have to fear? The creator and sustainer of the universe is with us. He's watching us, He's protecting us. He called us, He named us, He guides us, He loves us. As a Christian, this is 100 percent available to you in every moment of every day. The only thing limiting your relationship with, with God is your desire for Him is your recognizing that you actually need him in every moment of every day. Gospel identity is unshakable if you bring the implications into your real life. But if you limit gospel belief to a single salvation moment, Sundays, holidays, and funerals, you're limiting the life transforming power it is meant to have in our lives. Bring gospel belief into your normal routine. Bring it into the everyday. Bring it into your Wednesday. Bring gospel belief into your disappointments, your hurts, your pains, your heartaches. Christian, you're in the family of God through Jesus Christ. See everything through this reality and you'll walk in life and joy he has for you no matter your circumstance. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. In the family of God, you are called, you are named for a purpose The strong man has been defeated on your behalf. All your sins are forgiven through Jesus. God has reunited you into his closer than family community. God is your true brother. Jesus is your true, God is your true father rather. Jesus is your true and better brother. So Trinity, as you go out this week, this is as street level as we can make it. This week, when life hurts, I want you to pause and remind yourself that you're a child of God. You're in the family of God. Bring those implications into your life. Do you have a tough marriage right now? You're in the family of God. He loves you, He's for your marriage, He wants to help you. Bring Him in. Do you have a prodigal child that never seems to get it right? You're in the family of God. He cares about your child more than you do. Bring that into your life and believe it. Experience peace. You're not not fully responsible for everything. If you forget something important, if you let somebody down, happens all the time, right? I'm in the family of God through Jesus Christ. The eternal things are already secure. The moment-by-moment stuff, it happens. Put it in perspective, are you struggling with infertility? It's a tough one. You're in the family of God. Bring it into your real life. Career disappointment? Bad news from a doctor? Pause. Don't save the gospel for Sunday. Bring it into every day life. That's where the power is. That's where the power is. I'm in the family of God through Jesus. If you take one thing away, just remember that. Bring it into your regular life. And I really believe it will change you. May you experience the implications that this truth has on your worth, your purpose, and identity. And may you enjoy a renewed awe that you're welcomed into the family of God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. What a gift to uh, hear from your word, to to sing together, to hear about local ministries. Help us to believe this. We know it all. We We have so much knowledge give us belief, give us faith, bring it into our regular lives. Help us to functionally believe it and experience the implications of what it means to be children of God, sons of God through Jesus Christ. Make it real for us. Help us to believe. It's it's hard to believe. Faith is the work. Give it to us. May it be a gift. Help us to receive it in the name of Jesus. Amen. We'll um, take up our offering um, as we sing this song together. You can just turn my keys on Jordan, that'd be great.